Yeah, in the uh, 70s, in fact. But it was it was something I never took seriously at the time because it was just, I mean, what was I? when I was So I'd have been about 20, something like that, um, which is the time when you don't take much seriously, isn't it? You know, there is a time in your life when, when you, should not, you should not take things, you shouldn't take everything as something that you should regard as serious. And I didn't, I mean, it was a, it was a, Real knees up, but you know, along with that, there was there were many other bands I was playing in of equal merriment. <laughs> I was looking it up, but I didn't find a ton of information on it early on. What right. um, did you play around? I mean, what what was the nature of the group? No, we were. I mean, we were all uh, basically students, and that's. What, I mean, it was just an excuse to get out of our heads and play stuff that we wouldn't normally do, really. And we, in that respect, we were very successful. <laughs> Did you have an affinity for the music at the time? I listened to a lot. The ones that I really, the, the music of that period that I really liked was actually post-punk rather than, which could be, you know, it could be kind of construed that it was, it was certainly more polished. But, I mean, things like I was a, I was a big flat fan of uh, Blondie. I thought that... That was a uh, really good Ramones. I liked a lot. There was another another. I mean, actually, one of my favourites, which is now getting a little bit later, was Ian Dury and the Blockheads. I thought they were just a fantastic, fantastic band. And then still later on, um, I've always liked certain certain popular music with kind of tongue in cheek, where they know that they're being like ironic and. There's humour involved. So it, for that respect, I thought the B-52s were fantastic. I mean, this whole um, kind of camp persona that they went, these huge beehive haircuts, you, you know, you've, you've seen them. And musically, I thought they were just tremendous. In fact, I saw them about, it must be, oh, God, time goes so quickly, 10 years ago maybe at the O2, at the O2 in London. So, you know, everyone's much older and all the people in the audience were my, my age. In fact, that, that was strange that happened. I've, I've been playing with the Orb recently um, and we, we played one, I think about the first time I played with them, I noticed the demographic of their audience. They're all, so I'm 64, so they'll all be around my, my age. But they were dancing in exactly the same way as they were then, looking very as similar as they could to then, which is, uh, I've got two feelings about that, really. You can get stuck in a past that you really like, or you can investigate, and I'm not to say which is the best, you know, best approach. The fact that people can dance like that at 64 is a good sign. Yeah, that's pretty true. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, my, my wife is two years younger than me. She'll... She doesn't bother to ask me if I want to go because she'll know I wouldn't want to. But she goes to London to see people like The Weekend, which was where she was there the other uh, the other week. There's another one that she's – Little Sims is one of her favourites. Mm. So she'll go there and just jig around for a night. It's just um, – so she's kind of moved on. She still likes dance music, but it's not linked to a particular period in her life. So it is possible to, you know, continue exploring. Now that we're talking about it, I do see a few, not exact, but I, 
approximate parallels between the music that you're making now and and punk from the standpoint of you know there, there is a very obvious way in which punk is minimalist or at least like pure punk sure. is, is minimalist certainly. and also it i get the sense from you that the realization that you don't have to be that formerly trained of a musician to make good right. music was really empowering yeah. for you. Yeah, it really was. That's a good observation. Uh, because what happened to me, I was, you know, I was a, a kind of traditional music college, but not one that rammed Bach down your throat, thank Christ, because he really gets on my tits. I like Bach myself. I'm, I'm curious what your objections to Bach are. It's, it's too full. It's constantly full. There's nowhere that you can... Um, think for yourself because he's always dictating which uh, direction it's going to go and because it's been played so much and we're now so familiar you know from the outset where it's going to end up which makes it incredibly dull listening and the last you know the, the well not the last another objection is that the complete awe that he's held in you know it's like anathema to say anything bad about it where in fact a lot of his work was um, it was commissioned or or exercises? You know they weren't. They're not intended to be great pieces of music that you put on a pedestal. You know, but the way people talk about it, everything he touched was luminous, which isn't. Um, I, I you know I like many other people of that period. In fact, name virtually anyone, and I can get. But Bach is just too dense for me. Which probably goes back when I discovered people like uh, Eric Satie that was making the most beautiful music with five notes. I thought, right, that's the that's the way for me. Not because of it's lazy, but because it's just um, what it does for the individual is to empower the imagination. You're allowing other people to help write it by their thoughts of the piece. So yeah, that's exactly what I did. I thought I'd um, well if if um, if music like this can be written, I can write it as well. So that's that's what I did. It strikes me as a very uh, musician approach to listening to music because I don't know that everybody necessarily feels that way. Certainly not everybody you know wants to be challenged with the music that they listen to. Sure, um, but not everybody. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of in my own experiences of listening to music, I, whether or not I subconsciously attempt to fill the gaps in, and I, and I can't give you a good answer. Right. Well, you know, think over the next, now that's been seeded in your mind. It's going to ruin music for me for a little bit, if I'm being honest. I'm be <laughs> obsessing over that now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the that's the thing not to do, isn't it? To to obsess, just listen as you normally would, without without kind of pretending that you're testing yourself, and then think afterwards. Well, what did I think of that? Talk to a friend. <laughs> I'm not advising therapy, but you know, so you can you you can see what what that other person kind of had, what their experience was. But that's my thing. It's all, like a lot of the music that I write, I, I use sort of aleatoric techniques sometimes where I want to, excuse me, just one moment. I want to get people that are basically not taught to improvise or indeed to deal with other players 
which is curious, isn't it, that classical music is one of the few forms that music is kind of a result of reading, that you, you read what's there and then make noises that are related to what you've just read, whereas most other forms are all about kind of plucking ideas out of the air and playing with people and against them and conversations. So it's that sort of element that I'm, I want to put into mind. So I'll, I'll, I'll write very loose scores where people are, are encouraged to talk and look at other players to make each, um, each performance a unique one. Because just for one thing, you know, it's much more interesting for players to do that. It's a bit unnerving at first. Everyone said, you know, most people say, I've never done this. And they're, they're very, very wary of improvising because it's a completely different skill. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't force them to do it because it's quite a, it's quite a hard thing to do. Um, but once people are feeling comfortable, there's a, a, an atmosphere in the room that is not there from reading scores in the traditional way because something is, is being made in the moment for that moment, and everyone gets it. I, I remember the first time I heard Satie, or at least was um, knew that I was hearing Satie. Yeah, and sure. and, and th- the thing that really struck me is how contemporary it sounds. I mean, there's a sense uh, in which it, it doesn't age like other music. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, really extraordinary. Even to the, his contemporaries, like Ravel and Debussy, uh, Poulenc, I know is a little bit later, but um, they sound much more of an age than him. He really, he did something quite, well, unique, I think, didn't he? And I don't know what what took that to him. Was it because he was a... Um, there, there could have been social reasons, frankly, he had very little mm. money. Um, he drank an inordinate amount, uh, which I think might help. And he also was very dis- he was completely disillusioned with the world, that with the, the, the unfairness in the world, which kind of pushed him to the boundaries of, of, um, of society, frankly. I visited his place, not to go in, because you know, people still live in his flat, but it was the the area. Bit of my wife and I were in Paris a few years ago, um, and she went to a fashion exhibition um, or material market. She makes dresses and what have you. And I I went down to Arcueil, which is the area that he was he lived in, and it's still really scruffy. You know, it's not a place that you'd you don't go there as a, a kind of fashion statement. But he he was. He was forced to do that. He walked the, I don't know how many, I thought it was 12, maybe eight kilometres into the centre of Paris. And that wasn't for health. It's because he couldn't afford a a train, a tram. So he he was on the edge. So he was writing music that he perhaps was applicable to his life. It wasn't really for other people. I think it was descriptive of him trying to, to create a world that he felt comfortable in. One of the things that strikes me about, you know, insofar as I'm aware of of how you make the music you do is I get the sense in which you start with something fuller and then subtract the unnecessary elements. And I'm 
I know a bit about his life. You know, I, uh, I know some very interesting stories about him. I don't yeah. know a lot about his process. Are, are you? Did, did he take a similar approach to making music? From what I gather, and this is only gathering because I don't, I don't know exactly. But um, his handwriting was exquisite, wasn't it? Have you seen examples of his calligraphy? I, I don't believe so, no. Okay, it's worth a look. So, I mean, he spent a lot of time crafting it. And I get the idea, for some reason, that it's straight from head to paper. But these, but, but by nature of, of how he was thinking, he didn't really have to reduce much because he, <laughs> he was there already. Yeah. Whereas what I do, I'll generally start by improvising. That'll be my um, my kind of diving board, you know. But then, of course, you realise, well, that, that bit's just a bit clumsy. So that'll be taken out. And I'm not just saying only mistakes. You know, too long a gap will be reduced and, th- you know, various things like this. But uh, if it's from an imp- imp- improvisory point there are often things that can be improved. And one of the ways of doing that is by subtracting rather than adding. Because if you're adding to something that's already imperfect, you're actually just adding more <laughs> more imperfections. You know, the piece is not going to be perfect through, through adding above those. One of the things that it took me a long time to appreciate uh, as far as... Uh, improvisation goes is the the ethereal nature of it and that unless obviously unless you're recording it unless you have a physical document of it it's just made in the sure. moment and then only only the people who are, are there get to yeah. to witness it by the time by the time something makes it onto the record for you does is that the definitive document of that piece of music yeah, that's that's what I thought it was. But there's uh, there's as you may know, there's a there's a piece on this new one that was on my first ever solo album, Voices. Someone, you know, it was said that this is a really good piece of music that deserves a second a second listening. But I work in. There are two ways to to look at this because when you're thinking specifically about a recording. That's no longer about the moment. That's about listening again and again and again to the same thing. So that has to be um, a version that that has something that you want to preserve. So you can say whether it's whether it's definitive or not. I don't know, but it's going to have to be something that's good enough that stands up to repeated listenings. So there can't be an obvious error. Whereas in improvised music, you know, that come that goes like that, um, there often will be, but that's part of that experience. Do you understand? They, these, these are quite different things. Are you constantly recording or do you really make the effort to put an album together? I make music every day. So it's either physically writing it um, with these fellas, fountain pens, I love the love the the script of those and manuscript paper. Or uh, I'm actually in my studio now, which is which is basically um, iMac using Logic, sampled keyboard. I've got a harmonium that you can't see downstairs. I've got a 1904 Beckstein 
piano, which is just exquisite. So every day I try and write, well, I do write at least one or two, three pieces, which I keep. So then when it comes up to after maybe every two years, where it's sort of producing record time, I've already got a a huge um, cache of material to pull on. So it's then what pieces you want to present to the public in what form, because then a different a different stage of the work starts. What I often try to do, as you probably know, is to get overall feelings, um, atmospheres per record. So you know you pick what kind of vibe you want, and then get things that that will fit into that, or indeed make that feeling. In a sense, the process of putting an album together, or I suppose in your case, curating an album, parallels the actual songwriting process. In both cases, you do way too much, and it sounds like the the real hard part is doing the editing, especially yeah. in the case where you've you know two to three songs a day for two years. That is a yes. That's a lot of songs. Yeah, no, it really is. Yeah, you do end up with a, a vast amount. If that's true, yeah, you're hitting it on the head here because one of the one of the very hardest jobs is right at the end. So you've gone through all this. You've gone through these however many years of ideas. You've then gone through a selection process. You've employed a, in my case, like a string string orchestra or whatever the thing would be, to to play these to perfection. You then have to choose out of maybe twenty five really good quality pieces which ones are the best and then the last one which is the killer is out of the 12 that you end up in is getting the running order because although that sounds quite a minor thing that is that it has such an enormous effect on how you how you perceive the individual pieces what follows one or sorry the preceding one influences the following one and the following one then on second listening influences the first because you know what's going to come so you've kind of got this you've got this already in your head so that (coughs) that um action in itself the 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 cataloging of these last pieces it's one of the pieces that was one of the things that i like best because it shows you just how much a tiny change can affect a, a great big system. I don't talk to a lot of musicians about sequencing. It's not a subject that comes up. And I, I suppose there's an extent to which that is because maybe not everybody thinks about it in the same way. And certainly in this era, people aren't as you know album-focused or, or certainly sequence-focused as they used to be. What... What is that process on your end? Are you just constantly going back and, and re-examining the songs? Well, there are certain ways, uh, there are certain places that you can start. For example, um, related, bearing in mind the music that I write is not like popular dance music. So, you know, this is a, this is a different, it's quite a rarefied area we're talking about here. So it may not apply to, to many people. But I bet you people that put dance records together will use beat relationships. So there'll be like 120 and there'll be something that's either um, 
there'll be a relationship, they'll keep a beat relationship between each track, I can imagine. Well, my equivalent of that is using a harmonic or a, a tonal relationship between tracks so that when one ends, the next one will have a, a comfortable oral relationship to that other piece or an uncomfortable one if that's the effect that you want. So you kind of you you kind it's it's it rarely happens by chance that you get um get the perfect running order. I mean I don't know what the odds are, but if you're if you're talking about twelve tracks, I'm I'm no good at, at math. So, but you know the 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 number of variabilities are are considerable. So it it does take it it, it takes some attention to to get this right. I'm very happy. Have you heard the, the album before this, The Turning Year? Have you come across that? I have, yeah. Yeah. So that, for me, is a, a, a really good example of, um, of a running order. That works for me absolutely perfectly. You know, of those literally hundreds of songs that you've put together in this two-year period, the ones that don't make the cut on record, are they just gone forever? No, I keep them because um, you know jobs come up. Jobs come up, like uh, film music, for example, or music for theatre, dance pieces, things like this. So that nothing. It's it's rare that everything is is wasted because you'll think, oh, that's the perfect piece for this project that's that's just come in. Uh, you know, you can kind of recycle it. It won't. It may not have to be in the same form as you originally wrote it. But you think, oh, that's great because that this fits that speech just perfectly. They all live on on. I, I'm assuming on your computer. Hang on, I'll be back. I'm not running away from you. Um, or in this form, which is one that's. Um, He's he's holding up sheet music, I should say, for the. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. Right, yeah. You can't hear this because it's not being played at the moment. <laughs> you you can hear the paper moving around a little bit if you're very intuitive. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I am honestly holding up some music. Um, so yeah, it's it's kept in kept in manuscript form. In fact, that piece, as you'll see, Brian, is um, called "Moving Chords." That's a piece off this um, off this album. <laughs> so yeah, they're 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 documented. What I was I was listening to some recently because I want to see if there's, there's any. I'm starting to do some uh, concerts over uh, autumn and then going and I th I'm playing in the states. I think in next next spring, I believe. Uh, people are trying to organise that anyway. Um, so it's a, I want to use background sounds. And I was going through through this wodge of work that I was, uh, mentioned to you uh, to see if there's anything that would be good to back a solo piano. And so consequently, I've come across all these other pieces that I've kind of forgotten about because you do, you, you know, you do them and then stick them. Computers are really, they're buggers for this, actually, because you can... You know, you get, the pieces get hidden away, particularly if you're like me. I've got a terrible memory, and I just give thing. I give pieces a, a, a kind of temporary title, 
and then just forget what that's like, you know, because there's often no reference. It doesn't say anything useful like uh, slow three, four, really miserable, which would be great if it said that, because then you've got some idea of the, well, actually, that that kind of covers most of my work, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I somewhere I, I think you're using the phrase melancholia to describe some of it. Yeah, music. you've got it. You've got it. <clears throat> I think that's a great. Um, it's getting a bit cliched now, particularly after the the prevalence of of samples and new age. It it allowed people to to listen to cliches and not break them. So, and an easy cliche is to to wax melancholic, but really to be like that, I think you have to you have to be aware of the nature of death, that this is going to come to its end. It's not a laughing matter at all. Mine is quite miserable because I see transience. It's not, this isn't a kind of uh, an attribute that I'm putting on. I've got, a, hopefully, a, a very genial nature most of the time, but this is, this is tempered by a, a real reality that these moments we've got are fleeting. Which mm. is why that's that's really where my melancholy comes from. It's not saying, "Oh, this is handy. Make it really easy. Put a few minor chords in, and it will sell a few." That isn't that isn't why I do it. It's uh, seeing this um, really quite tragic side of existence. Is that something that becomes more prevalent the older you get? Oh, for sure. In my case, certainly. Yes, yeah, certainly, because you realise that. Well, I mean, you can you can kind of see the end, and also what happens as you get older. You'll have heard many people say this: time appears to speed up. And now, my wife, who's got a very good mathematical brain, um, says this is an entirely natural thing because if you're if you're a child of of five, a year is a fifth of your lifetime. Whereas if you, when you're 60, it's one sixtieth. So fractionally, it, it does get, it gets smaller and therefore quicker. So I don't know whether that is the reason that we perceive that to be the case. But what I was going to say was that you can, you can, like what was 10 years ago, really does seem so close. And you interpret that in, the, the, in 10 years' time, you think that's going to come here, you know, just... Just like that. Yeah, so the perception changes. Yeah, certainly. I, like a lot of people, you know, went through some difficult times over the last three years. Um, you know, some went through some health issues and things things compounded for me. I certainly got to a point, and I know there's a distinction, and you have drawn the distinction between depression and melancholia, but uh, the way depression manifests itself in a lot of people is, do you know the term anhedonia? No, I don't think so. What is that? So anhedonia, it's um, it's a it's a part of depression that you're. I'm sure you're you're familiar with it. If even if you don't know the name, is you you lose the ability to you lose the ability to enjoy things that you usually enjoy, like music or movies. All right, all right, okay. Certainly something that 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 I experienced, and what brought me back. It was, you know, it was ambient music and it was instrumental music, and and somehow, yes. to me, that was a, that was a good on ramp to 
really start engaging with music again. I've, I've spoken to a few people about this, and I've spoken to a number of you know artists and bands who make ambient music, and I I can't quite figure out why. I can't quite figure out why that that was a good place to start and to bring me back. Well, one answer to that may be that <clears throat> um, I mean, good good ambient music encourages a, a form of meditation, doesn't it? That you're willing to slow yourself down. You're willing to sit um, sit somewhere for sometimes for quite an extended period of time, as one would by a river, for example. Uh, you're you're letting time time pass as it does without without kind of interfering with it. So I can perfectly understand why that would be a, a point. One of mine is, um, I mean, I do that with my own music. That's how I try and keep as, as rational, as sane as I, as, as I can be, which isn't very, by the way, uh, <clears throat> is by playing music. The other, re- the other way that I do it is... Um, in the area that I live in, and you'll probably read about this from, you know, I often speak about it, there are the, the places bejeweled by medieval churches, Saxon places. So you're talking about 900, 1,000 years old, some of these places. And the idea that they've, they've been used for this amount of time, they're in these lovely isolated positions the atmosphere inside is something else. That's where I, that's where I take to. It's places that you can sit, sit down without the, frankly, without bloody adverts, for one thing, you know, that come in and say, buy this and you'll be a better person. This is something I find very tricky at the moment. Every time I go to London, which I, I very rarely do now, you're bombarded by the noise of commerce. And, you know, how much of that do you really need? No one's no one's asked to you know no one's asked to investigate what why on earth they think they're going to be any happier if they get a bigger car. No one actually questions why that is, which is for me they're 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 sort of critical issues. You know, if you think that you're going to be better off spiritually by going the the material route. Well, there's something fundamentally wrong. This idea of being centered by being around these old structures, you know, obviously there aren't really permanent structures in the States that that, that date back that that far. But as somebody who, to a certain extent, these questions of time and, and mortality are, you know, at very least in the back of your mind, it seems to me that visiting a thousand year old church really puts things into perspective. It's remarkable. Um, And you also see how differently the idea of death was treated because there were were the constant memento mores saying, don't forget, this is temporary. It's not said now. We've we've got this. I do humorist uh, funerals, weddings and funerals. I officiate at them. And one of the things that that I, uh, I'll often say to people is that your friend or father's death or whoever it is um, was unexpected because you expected the, the health system 
to somehow you expect them to keep us alive, which is what you do. You expect to go into a hospital and come out again. That was never the thought before the before the 20th century. If you if you got treated, the likelihood is that you're going to die of um, gangrene or oh God knows some awful disease. But death was a constant uh, companion, if you want to put it that way. And and now it's not. It's like it's not going to happen to us. And everyone's surprised when it does. <laughs> How did you start officiating funerals? It was a curious thing when when I was when I was in in Canada the first time in about nineteen eighty three. There was a there was an American publication called the National Enquirer, which you'll remember. And the World Weekly News, and I loved these. These were trashy things. It was when the real stuff was being discussed. You know, is Elvis alive on the moon? And they've, they've branched into celebrity gossip now, which is a real pity. But on the back of one of these, it said, "Become a reverend for nothing," and it was the Universal Life Church. So I, I wrote away, and I became a reverend there, and I think I got an honorary doctorate with it or something. And I then continued joining wacky churches. One of my favourites is the apathetic agnostic church whose hook line is we don't know and we don't care. So I wrote that in, you know, words and music, and they gave me a professorship with that place. But I think that's just great. Uh, there was another couple that I joined, but then I found out the Spiritual Humanist Church, and it rang a bell that actually this one seems to be quite useful. Because when someone died, bearing in mind we live in, um, I won't say an entirely godless society, but there's certainly less um, investment in faith than there used to be. So that when someone dies, you can't just dig a hole and throw the body in and pretend that's all right, let's go about our jobs. There's got to be someone that that officiates over a certain kind of ceremony. So what happened was these friends of mine knew that I'd um, uh, become this, uh, you know, become a, a reverend, as it were, and my wife knew that I'd played at, at, at um, funerals organ. I played organ before. And there was a magnificent error one day, and I came home, and there was this, this couple of friends that my wife and I know. <clears throat> the atmosphere in the house was extraordinarily odd. And what they'd done, their daughter had just died, and their daughter was like our third child. You know, she looked after our kids when... It, it, she was only 27 when she died. And it, it hit them really, it was horrible. So they'd come round and said, uh, can Roger do Alex's funeral for us? And they had said, yeah, of course he will. But what she was thinking was that I, they were asking me to play the organ. But they'd actually wanted me to officiate. I'd never done this before. But of course, B having said, yes, he'd do it, I couldn't say, well, no. And it was through that, so it was actually through accident that I, I started doing cere- services like that, ceremonies like that. Because before, I just thought, oh, I fancy this as a name, you know, <laughs> being a fancy, being a reverend. But it, it sort of became true, so I've done probably, what, I don't know, 20-odd now, I think, 
something like this. And then mainly for people that I know, but the word has, or knew rather, the word has, um, you know, spread a bit. Very, some of them are very difficult. I, I had to do the, the funeral of two, um, two twins. They died at three weeks old, and they were they were born extremely uh, prematurely. And that one I found a really hard job because normally you can speak rationally about it. You know that once once death has occurred, there's nothing to. Remember, you know, I, I, usually I use the Stoics as as a kind of lesson, but in that case, that wasn't even appropriate because the, that's not going to help. How do you help parents like that? You know, so it, it, that that caused me oh, weeks of thought to get that one anywhere near right. When you were speaking of visiting London, you know, you, you mentioned that there's just this, this constant bombardment with sound. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in New York City, very similar. I, I remember the first time I went back, I went to school in uh, Santa Cruz, with, you know, in California, it's in the, the right. Redwood yeah, Forest. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I remember the first time I went back and it only dawned on me standing in the forest that it had been a year since I experienced complete silence wow. and complete darkness. Because when they're all around you, you begin to take them for granted. And sure. one, obviously one moment in which, you know, we, we uh, are forced to, or force ourselves to engage with silence is, is a funeral or a memorial mm-hmm. service for you having officiated around 20 of these, what role does silence play in that process? Uh, this is, it's going to sound trite, but what a, all it does is allow, not all, but it allows concentration on the subject. So it, it, it allows a moment of gravity. That's the important thing. Because when people are jabbering about, you know, where they're going to go on their holidays or uh, what they saw on TV last night, that's not conducive to deep thought about the human condition. Whereas a minute or two silence, you can't get away from it. That's what you're confronted with. And I think that's an entirely healthy and beneficial thing to have to do sometimes. Because basically, this world is now constructed to that you can kind of buy, if you've got the money, you can buy anything you want. I mean, frankly, look at, um, look at the people who are now in, investigating extended life you know what's it called like you know i'm gonna live forever life extension that, you know this is it's it's all a bit it's a bit much for me frankly you know what are they going to do if they live forever what the f- what the fuck would you do <laughs> this is my trite observation but so much of conversation in day-to-day life is it is filling silence and probably largely subconsciously an attempt to avoid thinking about unpleasant things. Sure. Which is, in, in, you know, I can understand that exactly. I mean, you've got that in your constitution, haven't you? The pursuit of happiness. It doesn't say the pursuit of being bloody miserable all the time. <laughs> yeah. I think it's valuable to go down those holes occasionally but it's also val- valuable, valuable to relish 
the, the gift of life. There. That'll be a fiver for that advice. That's, that'll be five dollars. <laughs> Maybe this is something that you get from that process of officiating funerals, but as morbid as it sounds, I, I suppose the best way to appreciate life is to acknowledge death. It's completely that. Strangely, my, my 30-year-old daughter said that yesterday. She said, I think about death a lot. And by nature of that, she is one that completely appreciates the world. I mean, she's rarely without a camera in her hand and she writes continuously. She sings like an angel. You know, she's, she's not miserable, but it's, it's the idea that this is, well, it's terminal. You know, it's, it's, got, a, it's got an end. And I think if you acknowledge that, you can then fulfilly, uh, sorry, fully fulfill yourself. Fulfilly. I think I'll copyright. It sounds like a, what do I think? It's one of those big sandwiches with uh, pork and cheese, isn't it? <laughs> so your daughter performs on this record, and I was watching a really lovely um, uh, tiny desk concert that you did with, yes. with both of your yeah. daughters yeah. singing. And I'm always curious, as somebody who has been through, is not just a musician, but has been through the music industry, which is notoriously terrible and mostly right. getting worse, how much did you encourage their pursuits into that world? The, I, I didn't encourage them, but I, but I didn't need to, because music was around them all the time. They knew that that was my job. So therefore, it was possible to make a living out of it, um, if if they so choose, chose. The my younger daughter is isn't actually a professional musician; she's a psychotherapist. Which she, she's just finishing her. Tra- I mean, she's got clients now, but she's just finishing her extensive training. God, it's gone on for years. And but what a great time! I mean, because she started this, you know, a, a while ago. And in the interim, the world has gone completely mad. Like, everyone's gone bonkers. She's never going to be out of a job. You know, she'll, she'll, be, she'll be able to retire in five years if she wants. But bless her heart, she said the only drawback with that is that generally she can only um, treat wealthier patients which is in, in Europe still, although, although a lot of it's getting more right-wing, there is generally a different um, view on what society should be, how much people should share with each other. There's a, I'm saying it's different in Europe to, to the States. Um, and what crossed her mind is that if she can only, what good is she doing if she can only treat those that can afford it? So I gave her some simple advice. I said, well, you know, treat treat people that can pay for it and then do a day or two days pro bono work a week. So basically with lower rates or for nothing. So that way you can square your conscience and continue doing the the work that you like. So, I, you know, in, in Sister's case, I gave her advice as well. But she didn't really, they didn't need it. They were both playing when they were young. And singing, singing now. So it's a you know it's a piece of cake. Have you seen that film that Brian and I, when Brian I and Sis played at the Acropolis? You see that 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 struck me. Um, her Cecily's um, sort of chutzpah, 
She just doesn't get phased. You know, you're playing in one of the most iconic places in the world, and to her it's just like she's singing at the end of the garden. (laughs) That's kind of the complete opposite of you. I I get the sense that although you enjoy playing music live, that it's still very nerve-wracking. Just before, I I almost fall to pieces, almost invariably. And bearing in mind that this is all I've done, you know, that's never going to go. Um, yet the moment my fingers hit the keys, that goes. And then I can speak to people, you know. I like communicating with the audience just as we're talking now, you know. Part of the reason being that I don't want them to think that this is some kind of precious, highfalutin, arty event. I want I want people to feel genuinely comfortable so yeah so so, as soon as i start i'm okay but before it's it's horrible is it just sort of an an abstract sense or do specific thoughts go through your mind before performing um i think it was sir ernest rutherford or james jeans these are 1930s british atomic physicists and one of them said i can't remember which one it was he said, sometimes when I walk, open a door and I walk into a and I'm just about to walk into the room, I look at the floor and I realise that's made of, it's entirely made of atoms. And there is the minuscule chance that that floor will just disappear into nothing. So he'll have nothing to stand on. He'll just go straight down. That's what I fear, that you could just go on and everything you know you can do could just fall to bits. It doesn't, but that's what the fear is. To borrow a term from psychology, since we were talking about it a little bit, you know, there's this, and I do this, I'm, I've gotten better at it, but I, I've done yeah. this effectively since, you know, since I was a, a child, really, uh, this concept of catastrophizing, which is... Oh, God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your brain automatically going to worst case scenario, but it's, it's, it's interesting to try to reconcile for you somebody who to a certain extent does do that, but also engages with death in a way that isn't necessarily all that uh, depressing or anxiety inducing. Cause you know, death, death is generally, that's the worst case scenario. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But people do mix that up with pain though, don't they? Yeah. So there, they are two, two different things. No, um, I, I know, uh, yeah, certainly I catastrophize, or I try not to, but, you know, this is um, one of the very few negative things I got from my parents, um, from my mum, actually, who, who was terrible like that. What if anything happens, this, and it's always this could happen and that could happen. I mean, she had a pretty dark past, so I, could under- I won't go into it, but... You know, I can understand why that that happened. But it's a difficult thing to fight, isn't it? Because you you think, well, people do get knocked over and people do die. You've got to rationalise it by thinking, well, there's not a war on at the moment in East Anglia. (laughs) I live in in one of the quietest parts of of England, you know. You just have to rationalise it. You just think, well, I'm just going dark for the sake of it. Were your parents encouraging of, of your own music? I, I think probably I imagine that 
you were probably in a slightly better place than Brian when it came to that. Cause he's, you know, he's a, he's a decade older than you and he had been doing this yeah, music yeah. thing professionally. So when, when the time came for you to actually do it, was there pushback? No, what had happened, I was already, I was playing in a brass band when I was about 13, 12, 13, um, which was one of dad's great joys because his father had played in that very band. And I then went on to music college, which meant that I was, you know, going to be I was serious about it. And Brian actually was um, was really helpful in this because he showed our parents, working class people, like we were born in what is now called social housing. He he, Brian showed that there was it was possible to make a living and a good living out of the arts. <clears throat> so it wasn't like you have to, you know, why don't you become something practical? Because it, there was an example in the family that showed um, that something extraordinary could be done. Having said that, Brian <laughs> reminded me it was it was after he'd, he'd been in Roxy music, you know, feathers up and all this. <laughs> This kind of thing. Look, mum was still saying, you know, you could get a job in the post office if you really wanted to. It to him. Kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think I think that she did it to me as well. But um, it, it never goes. It's a kind of insecurity. You you do tend to stay, stick with what you know, don't you? And that's what they knew. But no, they were they were absolutely perfect to to all, all, all of their kids to tell you the truth. It's like they, they'd read a book, which they hadn't done, on how to be the best parent you can imagine. And that's what they did. They just absolutely loved us, which is the, you know, you can't go far wrong, actually, if your parents loved you. So that was it. <laughs> 